G'day and welcome to Talking Finance. Not exactly a Trump-free zone this week, but with President Donald Trump bogged down in the courts trying to stop Muslims getting in, we have perhaps a brief window to talk about something else. Let's start with the fact that the scourge of incompetent and or corrupt corporate managers is coming to Australia. That's Glaucus Research Group. It's an American investment fund that's very different to the norm. Instead of looking for good companies to invest in, it looks for bad ones to sell. Short sell, that is. Glaucus is setting up in Australia and pouring through the ASX lists for rotten Aussie eggs. And they've apparently found two, which I'm afraid they wouldn't tell me about, just saying, watch this space. Anyway, I spoke to one of the partners, Soren Anderhal, and started by asking him what exactly they do. 95% of investors in the market are oriented towards buys, and we're one of the few investors out there who, who sort of look for the opposing viewpoint, look for, for sales. So we're um, Glaucus. We're an activist short investor. We're based in the United States. We have offices in Orange County, California, and then Austin, Texas. It was started by myself and my schoolmate, actually, Matt Weikert. Him and I started in 2011. And we got our beginning looking at the, the wave of Chinese reverse merger frauds that sort of hit the U.S. markets at the tail end of 2009, 2010, and then in 2011. And uh, what's been your performance over the last, um, what is it, six years now? You know, it's been pretty good. You know, one of the ways that you can see our performance is basically every big short idea we've ever had. We've put it on our website. You know, any investor, any market participant can sort of see our track record. They can see some of the investments we've done and they can kind of see how we've done over time. Of the 26 short investments we've done since 2011, I think at the moment there's only three that went against us. The only three that were sort of a little, they went higher than, than when we were shorting. So on the short side, that's a pretty good track record. And you know, we're pretty careful about how much time and effort we spend for any given short idea. We're probably spending between 500 to 700 hours of research on, on a project before we're, we're putting on an investment. To some extent, your outcomes are self-fulfilling in a way because, you, as you say, you're publishing your research. And so people see the negatives that you're putting out there, presumably after you've gone short. It's not that simple. It's all based on the quality of the investment idea. If you don't have a quality investment idea, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter if you if you put it on the front page of the you know, the AFR or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Investments work out in the long term because it's a good investment idea. You have good evidence. You have a good argument. Any sort of short-term movement is just sort of secondary to, to the long-term outcome. One of your recent reports was on National Beverage uh, Company on NASDAQ. Uh, which I think was last September, and um, you got stuck right into them and called their governance ludicrous and uh, all this stuff. <laughs> but the stock yeah. hasn't come down yet. We're one voice of many in the market. I mean, the best way to think about it is this is these are our investment opinions and people disagree. And sometimes a lot of people in the market disagree and you know the, the market takes a different view of the stock. I think our general outlook is that you know we're we're short for, you know, an average probably of six, anywhere six to nine to 10 months on a, any given position. So we think in the long term, our, our our views are likely to prevail. But again, I mean, you know, no investor in the market hits the ball every time. For us, we're really concerned about the process and, and having ideas that we think are, that are not only smart, but they're well-researched that stand the test of time. And so we're not super concerned in the short term if, if it goes against us. 
I've never short sold anything myself, obviously just a private investor. And one of the reasons for that is that it seems to me that short selling, your downside is potentially unlimited. Whereas if you're long a stock, your downside at least is limited by how much you invested in it. Is that right? I mean, you can actually lose an unlimited amount of money with a short, can't you? That is correct. That's why you have to be really diligent in your risk management. And you have to be very careful about you know, how much you invest and in giving yourself leeway if the stock moves against you, but also be, you know, stop loss orders in to limit your downside. It does require to be a little bit more careful when you're investing because, as you say, you're 100% correct. The potential downside is unlimited. Are you mostly looking for corruption or incompetence? Both. <laughs> Both. It sort of depends on the market and it depends a little bit on the individual project. But we, you know, we short both corrupt management teams, management teams that we think are making misleading statements to the market, to their investors, their shareholders. But we also happen to short management teams that we think are incompetent and whose stock price is is massively overvalued in terms of the difference between what we think is the intrinsic value of the stock and, and what it's trading on. Have you started looking for any in Australia? The Australian market's a market we've been having our eye on for about two or three years now. We've done a lot of research on Australian stocks. We've been looking for the short side. And in general, actually, like what we find is Australia is a good market. It's really transparent. It's got high standards of corporate governance. You have a, a real established rule of law, and then you have an effective regulator here as well. You know, in our experience so far, we're not finding the, you know, you're not finding massive corporate governance or large numbers of companies that we think are making misleading statements. In general, everything is, you know, management teams are actually pretty credible and, and adhere to a high standard. That said, there are a couple of rotten apples, and I think that we're in the process of sort of conducting research on what we think are those two rotten apples. You've got two rotten apples, is that right? What are they? Come on, yeah. tell me. Tell us. <laughs> or is it t- it's too early? Presumably. It's too early. We have to finish our work first. Yeah, and, but when you finish your work, you will publish it, will you? We'll engage the market, and we'll definitely let you know when we're sort of finished our research. But we never, you know, we can't, we can't be premature about it. When do you think you'll finish it? I'm not sure. I think uh, hopefully in the next month we'll have our first investment idea. We're on the edge of our seats. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You know, it's just uh, one of the things we always want to communicate, you know, especially with your following of investors, you know, so many people who are, who, who follow the markets on a daily basis, you know, retail investors, you know, they have misconceptions about short sellers and they think that because we're, we're taking a sales position, somehow bad for them or bad for the market. If you look at it structurally, you know, shorts hold management teams accountable. You know, we bring a lot of transparency to the market and we bring for all investors more confidence that someone's going to hold management teams accountable for the disclosures. So we sort of think it's, you know, looking at it globally, that it does bring sort of the, the positive benefits of accountability. I'm all in favor of particularly what you do. I guess some of the short selling by hedge funds, it seems to be much less researched, more routine, and more opportunistic in many ways. We put a lot of time and effort to make sure, and if you read any of our reports, there's a lot of data points. It's not like we're finding one thing and we're making a big deal out of something that's small. You know, our investment thesis, why we're short, is based on just numerous confluence of factors that, that really indicate that there's something problematic at the company. It's interesting. One of the most shorted stocks, as I'm sure you're aware, in the US at the moment is Tesla. Yeah, it is. Which uh, is kind of interesting, and I'm wondering whether that's based on research or just the sense that uh, Elon Musk is a bit full of himself. I think you got a bit of both there. <laughs> it's a company actually we've looked at a lot. You know, we're not short uh, ourselves, but 
I think that the people who are have a really good investment thesis there. You know, especially with the recent combination of Tesla and Solar City, you've basically taken two companies that eat a lot of cash and they have to raise so much money every year just to keep going as a going concern that we think it's really problematic in terms of leveraging up the balance sheet and whether you know Tesla is really going to be able to produce the number of cars, you know, to be able to grow into their valuation and to service their debt. It's a real question. I think the shorts have a have a pretty good case in that sense in that one. The main economic event in Australia this week was actually a non-event, the Reserve Bank's decision to leave interest rates on hold. At least it seemed to be a non-event, since every single economist and commentator predicted that that's what would happen. But actually behind that decision is a very significant shift in Australian monetary policy. Here's CBA's Gareth Aird to explain. If we go back some three months ago, the market was uh, pricing in a decent chance that interest rates were going to go lower in Australia from here. But that's really shifted. I think it's shifted because of a couple of reasons. Um, One is that um, Donald Trump won the US election, so longer term uh, rates have lifted. The outlook for US uh, growth and inflation has both lifted, so that means a, a more hawkish Fed. And the other thing that I think, which is a factor here, is that Philip Lowe, uh, in my view, looks uh, less likely to cut interest rates than, than Glenn Stevens. What evidence have you seen for that? Uh, there's a few pieces of evidence. I think the first one was that when he came in, there was some wording tweaked around what the Reserve Bank's target actually is. So previously, it was an inflation target of 2 to 3% over the cycle, and that was changed to 2 to 3% over time. It's a minor change on one level. But on another level, it's a big change because it didn't need to be made. And I think that builds in a little bit more flexibility to the inflation target. The second thing was that there was some strengthening in the wording around financial stability uh, in the Monetary Policy Act, which basically elevated the importance of financial stability. And I think the third thing is that Dr Lowe, he's made some noises since he's been governor around not wanting to see household debt continue to increase as a share of income to support consumption. You put all that together and I think the Reserve Bank government doesn't want to take interest rates lower from where they are now. I thought the no change decision yesterday was very much in line with what the market and what we were expecting, but I thought his statement was a lot more hawkish than it needed to be. I think it was quite optimistic, probably more optimistic than the way I see the economy And I think that was a pretty firm signal sent from the governor that he doesn't want to take interest rates any lower. Do you think there's a sort of a a difference in personality between Philip Lowe and um, Glenn Stevens, or is Lowe just a man for his times? Oh, look, that's a good question. We tend to think of central bank uh, governors or heads of central banks as not having much of a personality because we don't tend to see it. Oftentimes, the wording that they use in statements or in in speeches and Q&A is quite dry. But in terms of what it might mean for monetary policy, I think that we can go back a long time ago to when Dr. Lowe was at the Bank of uh, International Settlements, and he was talking about financial stability then and the impact that monetary policy has on asset prices. And I think what we've seen over the past five or six years is the big impact that lowering rates can have on asset prices. And that brings about some, or can bring about some uh, risk to financial stability. And I think Philip Lowe is more cognizant of that or is placing greater uh, emphasis on that than what Glenn Stevens did. Well, in fact, the main asset price that it's had an impact on is housing, residential housing. Do you think that 
Philip Lowe is more worried about house prices than Glenn Stevens was. I think that's right, although we don't know how Stevens would feel about house prices if he was still in the job, because over the past three or four months since Dr Lowe's been in the job, house prices have continued to ramp up. I think last year when we had a couple of interest rate cuts, that was that came purely down to the fact that inflation was running below their target. At the time, the labour market was holding up okay, economic growth was pretty good, and the rate cuts that we had were largely down to the fact that inflation was below target. But since those come in, we've had two reads on inflation that both show that inflation continues to undershoot their target, yet he's left rates on hold. And I think the main reason for doing that is because house prices continue to rocket along in Sydney and Melbourne. And there is a risk then to financial stability if that continues, just given how high the level of household debt as a share of income is here in Australia. The other thing you're talking about is you say that the neutral policy cash rate has moved to a record low. Can you explain what the neutral cash rate is and why it's important and in what way has it moved to a record low? How has that happened? The neutral rate is a rate or a range of rates that we would say that monetary policy would be set if the economy was running uh, at full capacity, the unemployment rate was at the level we were associated with full employment, around 5%, and inflation was in the Reserve Bank's target. So that interest rate is fluid. It's impacted by a number of things. The biggest impact on it comes from the level of debt as a share of income, uh, where the exchange rate is, where fiscal policy is, and where productivity growth is. And over time, that interest rate has been moving lower. Gareth, is the neutral rate agreed on by everybody or is this an individual calculation that you make? It's an individual calculation. There isn't an exact formula or model you can use to derive it. So we look at a range of things, qualitative assessment, and run a few quant models to develop a range of where we think it would be. And we think it's around 3%. So in other words, if we had inflation here in Australia that was within the 2 to 3% range, and we had pretty much full employment, so an unemployment rate at 5%, then the policy rate here, the Reserve Bank's cash rate, would be just 3%. Now, that's very, very low for where we could we would consider rates in the past. Why is it so low? Well, it's moved lower because the level of debt in the economy, to the household sector in particular, has been rising as a share of income. So if you want to keep interest payments constant as a share of income and the stock of debt is rising, then the neutral rate that does that has to keep coming down. Is that another way of saying that the Reserve Bank cannot increase interest rates very much because there's too much debt around? People are in hock too much? That is absolutely the case. So the more debt that the household sector carries as a share of income, the bigger the impact that a rate rise has on the economy because effectively interest payments as a share of income are higher the more debt you carry and therefore rates don't have to go too high for that to be taking out of the stimulus out of the economy. So I don't think rates are going higher uh, this year at all, but if they were to go higher, it wouldn't take much for the brakes to be put on the economy. Just finally, what's your overall outlook for the Australian economy? Look, I think throughout 2017, it'll be a bit of a a mixed bag. I think uh, growth will chug along at an okay rate. Uh, And I think the labour market will probably hold up around where it is at the moment. A big factor which will determine our fortunes over the next 12 months is what happens with commodity prices. And 
trying to forecast commodity prices over the past few years has been a tough gig for a lot of commentators, including the Reserve Bank, because on the way down, a lot of people missed just how big the fall would be. And then in the last four or five months, we've seen a big lift in commodity prices, and that will flow through to income. So I think what we're going to see this year is a labour market that holds up okay, and an unemployment rate that probably flatlines from here. Okay growth, nothing spectacular, and hopefully, if we're lucky, commodity prices will hold up, which will wash through to some further gains in income. But I do think as far as the outlook for rates goes, they're certainly, uh, in our view, not going to go higher. And I think there's a chance they could still go lower. It's, it's not our view that they will, but if they were to move from here, I think it would be down. And the sector most directly affected by interest rates is insurance, since so much of their profits comes from investing in fixed interest securities. One of Australia's leading authorities on the business of insurance is Robert Kelly, the CEO of listed insurance broker Steadfast Insurance. And at the drop of a hat, Robert will grab a napkin or a coaster and draw what he calls the insurance clock. Oh, the clock. The clock. And I just wonder if you could tell us what time it is. Um, well, <laughs> it's probably about um, 20 to 12 at the moment, I'd say. And with the market pushing it towards uh, uh, 11.45. And what happens at 12 o'clock? <laughs> at 12 o'clock, that's when people like you get on your bandwagon and say the insurance industry is ripping off the consumer. They're charging far too much for their products and they will make enormous profits over the next couple of years. So. But, but I say that every minute of the day, Robert. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's terrible, it's true. Seriously, though, I suppose the point being that uh, insurance premiums tend to go in a cycle. The issue is that it's a capital industry, the insurance industry, and it's predicated upon the amount of capital that the insurers have got to use, either by way of their balance sheet or by way of their risk transfer to put it into reinsurance. If they can transfer it to their reinsurance programs, then they get a much better deal out of APRA for the capital requirement they need to write premiums. So with the current trend of investment, which is, as you know, very poor around the world, and with insurers for the most part really having to be in cash, if they get into securities, then they really get written down a fair bit, certainly in this country, if you've got investments in uh, the stock market, you don't get full value for that investment. So most of the insurers will tend to sort of use the US 10-year uh, bond yield as their target of what they can get out of the investment return. So if your loss ratios or combined ratios are, say, sub 100%, then the differential between the sub-figure, let's say they're running at 90% combined ratio. So that means that they've got 10% of their premium as profit, potentially, and if they're doing their reserving correctly. And if you then say, well, the um, billions of dollars that most have got invested, if they're getting a 2 or 3% return, right? So they're pretty buoyant at that particular time because the overall return might be somewhere between 4 and 12%, which is considerably better than if they just put the money into various other investments. So what we've seen but in the Australian market over, I guess, since the Brisbane floods is we saw a big increase in what I would call the bread and butter products, the house car products, which is roughly 50% of the Australian gross written premium. Increase in what? The volume? 
increase in price. You had a big increase in price to offset the fairly large losses that had been incurred. That price sustained itself for a couple of years and you had a couple of years benign claims. So the balance sheets got strong and we we're talking short tail business here, house and car, and the strength of those balance sheets then encouraged the insurers to seek out more premium at cheaper prices. And that went well for maybe two, two and a half years. What we've seen basically over the last three to three and a half years is we've seen the clock, if you want to use it, they were making plenty of money. They were putting it out at below loss ratio cost on the basis that if claims were benign, they'd make money and they had that. So the soft market started roughly in Australia three and a half years ago in bread and butter type business, the small to medium enterprise risks and the mums and dads risk of house and car. Once that soft market started, it almost becomes a cascading effect because there's a fear amongst the major insurers that if they don't keep their pricing down low, that people will go to a competitor. So it almost becomes self-fulfilling that you build up your balance sheet, you get your reinsurance cheaper or more economic, perhaps that might be a better way to express it. Uh, you use the risk transfer of reinsurance to keep your capital intact and to get your ratios with APRA well in control. And then you use that powerful balance sheet to go into the market and undercut your competitors. And we've seen that occur between Suncorp and IAG. And of course, it's they have been impacted, as they would probably argue correctly, by the challenger brands that have come in. You know, you've seen Real come into this market and form a brand. You've seen Progressive come from North America. You've seen Budget Direct come from South Africa and UI come from South Africa. Now, all those challenger brands have come in without a legacy of claims and without a huge and monstrous head office, such as those, the three listed Australian insurers have got, where they've got thousands of employees these companies have been able to set up with hundreds of employees, not thousands of employees, and in some cases, less than 100 employees, and get into the market. So their cost of production is considerably cheaper than the incumbent major insurers. So you combine all that with benign claims, low prices, cheap reinsurance, and a desire to not allow the challenger brands to come in and take your position, and you've got a soft market. And so what we've watched occur, we started calling it out just over a year ago that the combined ratios were getting completely out of kilter. For instance, from the APRA statistics, the combined operating costs on fire insurance, which is uh, business insurance, and was last year 136%. It, it came back slightly to 130%. But it's a long way away from a combined ratio of, say, 85 to 90%, which will give them a, a, an effective return on their money. We also watched Motor Fleet get up towards the 100% mark. We watched House get up towards the 100% mark. We watched cars vacillate between sort of high 80s to high 90s percent. So you can only go for a short period of time on that investment clock not producing a profit out of the dollars you put out, which is offset by the investment returns that you may get. Robert, we've seen the, the US bond rate actually bottomed on July the 8th. It seems to have now entered a new kind of cycle of rising bond yields. Is that going to rescue the insurance companies? 
I don't think it'll rescue them because rescue is too strong a term, I think, Alan. But what it will do will give faith and confidence to the ones who've built up fairly substantial gross written premium pools to say, well, we can ride this cycle a little bit harder because we've now got some, if we go and buy a US bond, there's going to be some percentage points in that. And if you've got sales of 16 billion and you get a few percentage point on your investment, it very quickly extrapolates into bottom line profit for you. So I don't think it's the golden panacea that's going to save them. But what it is, is that there's probably plenty of CFOs around the world going, thank God for that. Does the new bond cycle mean that it might be a good time to invest in insurance companies? Insurance companies are an acquired taste, Alan. They're something that everybody has to have. They're something that everybody doesn't particularly like. They see it as a grudge buy from time to time. And you only hear about how relevant they are when, in fact, there are substantive claims and people are not insured or gracefully have been insured. So would it be a good time to invest now? You've got to go back and have a look at the fundamentals of the the three uh, local insurers who are very substantial companies in their own right, for the most part, very well run, and for the most part, do the right thing by their policyholders. But you're never going to get back to the Hallison days. I can remember when QBE's uh, stock price was $35, and I used to think to myself, gee, that's fair value for that stock. Right? That's a short. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want boring businesses that are reliable with huge capital bases run by sophisticated people who, for the most part, don't do anything stupid and will get a, a good frank dividend, then insurance companies are a good investment. I look at them now and say they're well run, they've got great market share, they've got great loyalty from their customer base, they're under a little bit of challenge from the challenger brands, but the combined of all those challenger brands, if it topped out at 1.1 billion out of 35 billion, they'd all be thinking that that's pretty good and that's about, I think, what they've taken away from them out of it. Then if you want a safe investment, they're not going to go broke since the debacle of uh, the early uh, 2000s and the fixing of the financial services sector, both in banking and insurance, then they're pretty safe to get into. They're going to give you a boringly reliable frank dividend and their capital bases are secure and well-regulated. Okay, time for a bit of Trump. I'd heard that Alex Wazelitz, the chairman of Thorny Opportunities Fund, in which I'm an investor, by the way, was in the United States at the moment watching the show over there close up. So I tracked him down to ask him what he thinks is going on and also to give me an update on how my investment's going. I think the market's really interesting at the moment. The world is sort of watching the US with fascination in regard to what um, President Trump is going to do next and how he's going to express it and what does that mean. The US market is obviously, uh, equity markets have responded well to what is said based around um, principally tax cuts, infrastructure spend being the focus areas. I'm in the US now and generally the sentiment is quite positive from a business perspective. So I do think the uh, outlook, at least in the short term, is looking quite strong based on that and that's how the market's reacted since his um, pre-inauguration. But I would just add a note of caution in there, but in rising up so strongly, 
we've got some pretty high uh, valuations happening and PE levels uh, emerging. So if the earnings don't justify those valuations, then that uh, sets a little uh, dangerous scenario for perhaps later in the year. But have you had any failures? Uh, well, I don't think we've had any failures in thorny opportunities. We've certainly had failures over the course of our career. I suppose you could say Service Tree, we were an investor in a private thorny, still with the holding when it went downhill. So I suppose that was a mistake, not recognizing that. But from the thorny opportunities point of view, um, we've had uh, successes other than perhaps one which we still think has got potential, which is the TBI Enterprises, which is the Tasmanian legal licensed uh, opium grower, which has now spread its manufacturing operation into Victoria. That is still below its listing price. And we think they've been delayed on achieving some milestones, but we think those milestones are being achieved and have been achieved over the last six months. So we're hoping that that company will still perform to its potential over the next few years. Another stock you're in is Austin Engineering, and they've had a terrible time. Austin, I think, is another one, perhaps, yes, as uh, you pointed that out, that we recognise to some degrees that the winds were changing in the mining services industry, but we probably went a little bit too early, and they still hadn't turned, or still turning just now, off the, perhaps the bottom of the sector performance. And we had to be quite active in that situation to lead a recapitalization of the balance sheets, to be supportive of the change of leadership at that company, both at the uh, executive level. There's now a new CEO, there's now a new CFO, and there's also quite a few new board members, including a new chairman, uh, Jim Walker, who stepped in recently. So there's been a lot of work on that one, but we feel we've got our head above water now, and we think there are some emerging green shoots there that should hold us hopefully in good stead over the next six to 18 months as the strategic value of its operations come out. I take it you've got a position in Fairfax. You've been on at them lately, I think not just lately, either talking, telling them to change their name to Domain. Do you think that'll make a big difference to that company? Well, we've been involved in uh, Fairfax for quite a number of years going back to when the share price fell to about the 30 cents level when the private Thorny was investing. And later on, Thorny Opportunities took a stake as well, um, probably the share price in the uh, low 70s. Look, I think the talk about the name change was more sort of symbolic in a way and just saying that the Fairfax of all, which is still associated with the name, is nowhere close to resembling what the uh, future of the company is in our view. And that future really revolves principally, in our view, around the main um, value contributor, which is Domain. Uh, Domain has grown enormously over the last few years under some good leadership from Anthony Catalano, from an EBITDA of some 15, 20 million to, I think, 110-odd million this year, and hopefully 125, 130 million or thereabouts in the coming year. And we think, fundamentally, that the Domain valuation reflects the entire market cap of Fairfax as it is today. <laughs> Last year, you launched Thorny Technology Fund. Why did you do that? Why not put technology stocks into Thorny Opportunities? Well, Thorny Technology, yes, I just listed a couple of weeks ago. It was an initiative which was somewhat unique on the Australian Stock Exchange and has a different risk profile to Thorny Opportunities. That's why we separated it. Its unique positioning on the Australian Stock Exchange is that 
it sought a mandate and we got a mandate to invest not only in publicly listed technology companies, both on the short and the long side, but also on unlisted securities in technology-related stocks, So, meaning uh, pre-IPO positioning, which we will be active in, series rounds of raisings, and even, uh, in theory, startups or uh, early venture capital propositions. So normally when you go into that unlisted category, you're really caught up in a fund that has, uh, you know, maybe got a seven or 10-year time frame with no liquidity. This is a unique vehicle that says we'll give you a portfolio across the life cycle of technology and we'll give you a listed vehicle which has a daily share price that you can buy and sell at your choosing. That was the proposition behind technologies and obviously the nature of technologies and including some of the earlier things are higher risk, hopefully higher return. So it's a different kind of framework than what Thorny Opportunities is, which is across all industries really focused on value and where we, as a shareholder, can be a catalyst for change in a more active manner rather than just a passive shareholder, if it's required. Happy birthday to the wonderful Carol King, 75 today, one of the great songwriters of the 20th century. Here she is doing the theme to the Gilmore Girls, Where You Lead, I Will Follow, which I'm also dedicating to my daughter Phoebe, who was off work at the moment, recovering from an operation, since she's such a big fan of that TV show. And thanks to the great and growing team here at The Constant Investor, managing editor James Brandis, producer Buffy Gorilla, Sally Laycock filling in for the absent Phoebe, intern Dave Thornton who's been helping with the quotes of the week, and bean counter extraordinaire Aidan McIntosh. I'll be there in your inbox when you wake up on Saturday morning with the latest from Trumpland, among many other things of course. See you then. Mm-hmm.